So Galatians chapter 4. As we look at tonight's study, I want you to really uh, hone in on to this truth of God being our Father. And I know that that's something that we talk a lot about and we pray a lot about, but I'm asking of the Lord tonight that it would sink in in a deeper way because Paul is exhorting this group of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, that they don't turn back, that they don't go back and enter into bondage. They've been saved out of bondage, but now they're being tempted to go back into bondage through legalism. It's rules over relationship. And I was reminded this afternoon of 1992. I am a 90s child, so... I was thinking back to Barcelona. It's the Olympic Games. Maybe some of you remember this moment. Uh, a man by the name of Derek Redman is running the 400 meter. And he is predicted to win. And then something happens. And then from there, something else happens. And I pulled up the video, and we're going to play it for you because I think it's a powerful illustration of a relationship with the Father. And I want you to think of your relationship with your Heavenly Father. So we'll roll this, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. So in that moment, you have him pull his hamstring. So lifetime preparation to get to that moment. He's doing well, and then all of a sudden, bam, there goes the hamstring. Dad comes out of the stands through the security uh, to his son. The security tries to stop him, but he goes through. And if you read articles on what is being said between father and son, uh, dad says to Derek, you don't have to do this. And, And the son says, yes, I do. And then dad responds, let's do this together. Let's finish this race together. 
And as you're watching that video, you can see that some of the security is saying, hey, you can't do this. And the Olympic officials are saying, hey, you can't do this and we need to stop this. And dad's pretty adamant about saying, hey, leave us alone. We're going to we're going to finish this race. And when you pull this up, most people use this uh, to talk about perseverance and not giving up, which it absolutely is. But I think even more so than that, it's a story of a relationship between a father and a son. And that relationship began long before that race, but it really showed the power of the relationship between the father and the son in that moment. And I think that oftentimes for us as believers, what drives us is a real works-based philosophy and relationship with God. It's, it's rules-based. It's if I do these right things, then God is, is pleased with me. But what we'll find throughout Scripture and in Galatians 4, it's much more about the love of God and a relationship with God and the fact that He's our Father. And Jesus brought us into that relationship with the Father. That's the whole reason that He came. He died for our sins so that we could be adopted as sons or daughters to the Lord. And so my question, my challenge for us all tonight is, am I relating to God out of rules and regulation, or am I relating to the Lord out of that place of relationship? I know that you've probably had a really busy day, and it's been a full day, and blessed that you're here tonight. And as we pray, let's come before the Lord. Let's go to his throne room. Let's ask that he would refresh us. Father, we thank you that you are our dad. We're asking that, that you would just plant that truth deeper into our hearts tonight. That we would understand what it means to be joint heirs with Christ. That we're your sons and that we're your daughters. And how to live in that and to enjoy that. And to be in awe of that relationship. So we say thank you. Thank you for making us your sons. Making us your daughters. We're so blessed to belong to you. We pray that we wouldn't live in legalism. We wouldn't live under the law, but we would live under the grace that's been provided to us through Jesus Christ. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So don't turn back. Don't turn back from the freedom that you've been given in Jesus Christ. And three ways to do that. If you're taking notes, we're going to cover these three things. Number one, know your identity. Number two, know your history. And I'm not talking about World War II or the Great Depression but your own personal history with the Lord, who you were before you received Christ as your Savior. So know your identity, know your history, and then know your contract. And that's the contract that God has made with you, the covenant that he has made with you. So let's look in verse 1 of Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. This can be a confusing verse unless you dig into it. Paul is giving the illustration of a wealthy family. And the wealthy family has an heir, a son, a daughter. But they're treated similar to a slave until they come to a place of maturity. And this makes sense even in our culture today. If someone has a very rich family and they've got a child that's four or five years old, that child is not writing checks, starting businesses. They're not handed the family fortune at age four or five. One of my friends, his job is to do estate planning for people that have been blessed with money. And, and some people choose to not even give money to their children because their children lack maturity. They never really come to that place of adulthood, so they choose to do other things with, with the money. And what Paul is using this as is an understanding of our maturity before we came to Christ. 
and that we're no longer slaves, we're, we're no longer treated as a child who hasn't come to maturity, but we're treated as one who's come into full sonship. So he develops this in verse 2. But is under guardians, so this is speaking of this child who's not of age. He's under a guardian and then steward until the time appointed by the father. And this was true of the Jewish culture, and it was also true of the Roman culture, is that the kids would come to an age of maturity. And there, for the Romans, there would be this sacred family festival, and they're saying, son, daughter, you're now an adult. And at that point, they would have full sonship. They would have full daughtership. And then for the Jews, they have their bar mitzvah at age 13, where kids were now considered to be adults. And now this is all pointing to verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So we were under the law. We're under the guardian, if you would, until we come to that place of full maturity, until the appointed time that God sent his son for us. In verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Eternity. God sees it all. He's put time in place. And he had an appointed time for Jesus Christ to be born. God sent his son. He, he purposefully sent his son. And when we think of Jesus as the Son of God, it's a dec- declaration that he's deity, that he's God. But also, born of a woman, the virgin birth. So all God, but yet all man, humanity. Why was God sent in human flesh and born under the law, placed underneath the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons? The word redeem means to buy back or to purchase So Jesus came, was born in Bethlehem, a human, God in human flesh, and he was under the law, meaning that he lived perfectly under the law. In order for Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the punishment that we deserve, he had to live perfectly under the law. I was thinking of Christ in a deeper light for me. I hadn't really thought too much of Christ and all that he went through just to live under the law. The kosher diet, the festivals, the Sabbath day, all of those things. He did those letter perfect for us. Never sinned, fulfilled the law perfectly so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Now remember the big picture of the book of Galatians. You've got churches that are having their arm twisted. There's those that are coming in and they're courting them. They're they're after their hearts and their minds saying, you need to go live back under the law. And we go back to chapter 3, and Paul told us that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But our rest is in Christ, our salvation in Christ. And now he's saying the reason that we don't relate to God in this rules-works-based mentality is because we've received adoption as sons. Adoptions as sons and daughters, and we're no longer slaves. And when you look up this word adoption in the Greek, it literally means this. It takes the position of sons. It's the full right heirs of sons. So God's now brought us into to that place. And relationship is very different than rules, isn't it? And we know that when we celebrate Valentine's Day. Husbands, Valentine's Day is Sunday. Mark that down on your calendar if you don't yet know. But when you're in love, when you're in a loving Committed relationship that has won your heart, 
it's not a have to. It's not rules, okay? These are, these are the things that I must do in a, in a relationship. You watch a couple that, that's in love and it's motivated by the heart. It's motivated by desire. And that's what God longs for with us is that we're living unto him. We're desiring to live a holy life. We're committed to a holy life, but it's because of relationship. It's because he's our, our father, that we're his sons, that we're his daughters. And I believe that relationship goes far deeper than rules can ever go. You know, I hope there's some rules in your marriage. There should be. Things like how you're committed to one another and your purity to, to one another and ultimately to the Lord. But hopefully that's motivated out of love, not out of rules. Well, this is what I've got to do because I'm a husband. This is what I've got to do because I'm a wife. You know, I willingly chose to commit myself to this person. So let's look at verse six. It says, and because you are sons, so that's who you are, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So don't turn back. Don't go back to rules. Don't go back to legalism. Why? Because know your identity. Know your identity. That's number one. And it says, because you are sons and you are daughters. And God sent his spirit that was in Christ into your hearts. So we see the active engagement of the Trinity. Three distinct persons, but yet one. The Father is sending the Son. The Son is taking on human flesh to be crucified for our sins. The Spirit is alive in Jesus in his earthly life, but is also alive in our hearts. Now, what's, what's the Spirit trying to get us to realize tonight? What is he working in us, not just tonight, but every day of our lives? He's stirring us. He's whispering to us, Abba, Father. You have a Father, your heavenly Father. And that's the whole goal and the whole desire of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus taught us to pray, what was the beginning of really the disciples' prayer? We call it the Lord's Prayer but Jesus was teaching the disciples how to praise our Father, which art in heaven. Do you find your identity in the fact that you are the Son of God, the daughter of God, if you believe in Christ? Probably we all struggle with that to some degree because identity is where we find value. So where do you find value about yourself? Most of the times, it's found in what you do. So if you're really good at your job, you may feel pretty secure about your identity. But if you were to lose your job, you may struggle with your identity because a lot of our identity, unfortunately, is wrongly placed and we place it in what we do. And that can creep into the church, can it? And we can find ourselves serving God, living a holy life, and all of a sudden our identity is found in what we do as believers instead of who we are, that we're loved by God, that we're the sons and the daughters of God. Derek Redmond, as he was running this race, he had some identity even though his performance failed. And what was that? That I'm a son and I have a father and my father is standing by me in this very dark moment of my life. And you think about what it means to be an orphan. A lot of times orphans, especially at this time when the Bible was written, they didn't have a lot of identity. They didn't have a lot of belonging. If you were adopted, if, if you don't know your biological mom, your biological dad, and, and you remember growing up 
not knowing who your mom was, not knowing who your dad was, not having the privilege of being able to go home and be loved on and get hugged and have that sense of, of belonging, you feel that, that great lack in your life. And then if God allowed at some point for you to be adopted, to be chosen, all of a sudden there's that sense of, of belonging. See, see, that's the power of identity. You know, there, there's, that's what people find in, in sports. That's what people find in, in the workplace. That's what people find in, in education is this sense of, of belonging but it's all misplaced because it can be ripped away from you unless ultimately your identity is found in the Lord. You are sons. That's what verse six says. You are sons, you're, you're daughters, you're, you're loved by God. So your identity is not found in what you do. And then sometimes we think our identity is formed in what we have. So if you've got money, if you have cars, if you have a house, and we go, oh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not that way. Well, what if... You lost your house. And you've been in that process of buying it back from the bank called a mortgage, right? Call it home ownership. And then all of a sudden, it's stripped away. You can't make the payments. and Don't make the payments for six months. And they come knocking and they say, we're taking your house. How would you feel about your sense of identity? It would be hard. It would be difficult. Some of you have gone through that. You've lived through that. And so we have to wrestle and go, you know what? I'm not just what I can do. I'm not just what I have. And another way that we struggle is what people think about us or what people say about us. If people respect you, if they compliment you, but if they come against us and they ridicule us, make fun of us, all of a sudden we can struggle with identity. And Paul says this is the core foundational truth to living in the grace of God instead of living underneath the law. Living underneath, well, I've got to do these things. I can't communicate this accurately with words. This isn't something that, that just I can get across through verbal communication. It has to be something of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit touches our hearts, touches our lives, and you know that you're the son of God. You know that you're the daughter of God. How cool is that? That's part of this grace that God has given to us through what Jesus Christ has done in the fullness of time that Jesus would die for our sins and rise again so that we could be forgiven and full-blown, full-right sons and daughters of God where we cry out, Abba, Father. And this word Abba, it's Aramaic, and it means father, and it was used by young children to their dad. It's the same as daddy today. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason, it's difficult for me to connect with the fatherhood of God. It's a growth process for me. It's easy for me to pray in terms of Lord and the power of God and even the goodness of God, but to really address God as a father. I remember when I first started uh, being a teaching pastor, being a lead pastor, and someone pointed that out to me. You don't ever begin your prayers with Father. And when I first started teaching 10, 11 years ago, I mean, there was a lot of critics and probably well-deserved, right? So there's a lot of a- analysts of, of, of my sermons. And so someone gave me that feedback, and I thought about that, and I was like, yeah, all my, all my prayers start with, with Lord, 
That's how I, at that time, tended to begin all my prayers. Think about it for you. How comfortable are you even saying Father to God in your prayers? Is that how you start your prayers? Not that it's wrong to address God as Lord, because he is, but, but do you feel comfortable? Could you, could you embrace him as, as Father? If you were to cry out to God as Daddy tonight, how weird would it, that sound to come off of your lips? Daddy. Is there that kind of intimacy with the Lord and closeness with the Lord? It probably sounds a little bit foreign. Yet this is where the Spirit of God's trying to get us, to where there's such comfort in his love, there's such relationship in his love that we can cry out to the Lord, Dad, Dad. And this relationship with him is based on the grace of God. It's not based upon our works. It's not based on if you read through the Bible in a year, if you tithe, if you, if you witness, if you live a holy life, it's based on your faith in Jesus Christ that brings you into this relationship with the Lord. Isn't that good news? And this is what the church of Galatia was in danger of losing and going back to a workspace relationship, going back under the law, thinking, well, if I do these things, I have a little bit more merit with God. I've added to my justification. I've added to being declared righteous by God. I'm adding something to my sanctification. And so verse seven tells us, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. No longer a slave, let that sink in. You're no longer a a young child that can't be trusted with all of the goods of the family. You're, You're not a slave. You're not under a guardian. You're not under a steward. You're not under a a tutor. The training wheels have been taken off. You're not a slave. But you're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. You're an heir of God through Christ. Because if you're a full-fledged son, if you're a full-fledged daughter, then that means that you're a rightful heir. Tremendous. That's something the law could never do. The scriptures tells us we're joint heirs with Christ. So Christ, we know, is the Son of God, has the tremendous heritage, the the heir, and yet we've entered into that inheritance. Maybe you're a little discouraged that you haven't been able to put anything away towards retirement. Well, if you're a believer, you have the best retirement plan ever in eternity. The streets are paved with gold. You're the joint heir of Christ. It just keeps getting better and better. It goes up and up. So that's the first thing to really know, is know your identity, know who you are, know that you're loved by God, know that you're the son of God, the daughter of God. It keeps you from legalism. It keeps you from being rules-based. And then know your history in verse 8. But then indeed, when you didn't know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. What was your life like before you knew Christ as your Savior? Who did you serve? For these churches in, in this region, they, they serve those which by nature are not gods. And that's true. We serve ourselves. We serve lies. We serve all kinds of foolishness and, and sin. What was your heart like? I remember before I surrendered my life to Christ, there was a tremendous emptiness that was in my soul. Couldn't be satisfied. Constantly looking for more. What was it for you? And this is a point, Paul brings this up for a point in verse 9, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, and I like that, you know God, but also God knows you, how is it that you turn again to weak 
and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be under bondage. Which is so intriguing to me about this is this area in Turkey was primarily Gentiles. They weren't Jews. And so they were under all kinds of bondage of sin and false gods. They get saved. And you imagine the freedom that they have in Christ, the joy that they have in Christ. And then here comes some Jews up from Jerusalem. They're like, that's great that you've gotten saved. But if you really meant it, then you'd be circumcised. If you really meant it, then you would celebrate the feast from the Old Testament. You'd have a a kosher diet. And their hearts were soft and open. But before they realize it, they trade in their freedom for bondage. So they were under bondage, then they come to know God, but now they're headed back into bondage. And I think that's what legalism does in our lives. Maybe you get saved from a broken, wild, crazy past, or you didn't have a crazy, wild, broken past, but you were just as much bondage. Then Christ sets you free, and you're following the Lord, and here comes this religious person that says, well, you know what, I gotta test your love for God. And if I'm going to test your love by God for it, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. And I've got to tell you that there's something about our sinful flesh that likes rules. I bet that some of you don't even like this message. There's some of you that are going, you know, there's just too much grace in this message. I'm, I'm tired of all of the sinful living that has come inside of the church And I just want someone to lay 10 rules on me, lay 20 rules on me, because if you do it, it feels really good. You've got the merit badge. And you you can walk around saying, I've really fulfilled the law. It it attracts our our flesh. There's a part of us that that really wants it. We're going to find that the message of grace is persecuted. It always has been. it, It always will be. And so before we know it, all of a sudden we're led back under bondage. Now please understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Is God's word is good. And everything that he gives to us is to be obeyed. Amen? We're to obey the word of God. But it's the motivation by which we obey. Going back to that illustration of marriage and a love-filled marriage. And we're not trying to obey God's commands to earn or deserve his favor. Amen? Agreed? We're wanting to obey his commands because we've already received his favor. See the difference? It's the motivation of the heart. So be, be very careful that you don't trade in your freedom for more bondage. Because there'll be many that will try to lay it upon you. In verse 10 It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. What's Paul referring to? The Jewish calendar from the Old Testament, from the law, the feasts. They're observing the feasts, and Paul says, I'm afraid that I've labored in vain because they're trusting in keeping the feasts for their salvation, for their sanctification. You can celebrate the feasts out of the joy of the Lord, And how Christ has fulfilled those feasts, by all means, there's the freedom to do that. Or you cannot celebrate the feasts, but it's wrong to celebrate the feasts thinking that that's going to save you. Or that by doing that, that's going to make you more like Christ. I'm sure that there's people that have read the Bible faithfully, religiously, daily. They've read it cover to cover so many times, but they're trusting in their Bible reading to save them. Instead of knowing the goodness and the grace of God and being drawn to this love letter and reading it out of response. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have gone 
to church throughout history that are the most faithful attenders. And from the outside, they look like the most holy people, but they're doing it to try to earn or deserve God's favor. And God says, your works are like filthy rags to me. There's no way that we can make up for our sin through, through our works. They're not trusting in what Christ has done for them. And Paul's saying, I'm afraid that I've labored in, in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. What, what's Paul saying? That sounds a little bit arrogant. Oh, I, I want you guys to be like me. He's saying, I want you to enjoy the freedom that I have in Christ. He says, I became like you. He was a Jewish believer, and when he came to a Gentile area, he became like them to win them for Christ. Continuing verse 12, you've not injured me at all. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preach the gospel to you at the first. We don't have all of the details here, but there was some kind of physical infirmity in Paul's life that led him to this area of Galatia, of Asia Minor, and he preached the gospel. So in the midst of this Bible study, God gives us a nugget. He gives us an application. And that's in the midst of disease, sickness, cancer, car accidents that leave you with a severe back injury. God is in the midst of all of that. And through those injuries, it's going to lead you to lost people that would never be in your life. And it's an opportunity to share Jesus Christ. What led Paul to this area of Galatia was his physical infirmity. That's hard to keep in mind. I remember years ago, I was having just a nightmare with my sprinkler system. Turning it on. What, what time of year do we turn on our sprinkler systems? May? Hopefully some, you know, so it was that time of year. I was turning on the sprinkler system and the backflow valve had cracked and so it needed to be replaced. Kent and I, who's going to Uganda, we get a backflow valve from... Home Depot, and we, and we put it on, and it still wouldn't work, and then we realized there's arrows on the backflow valve, <laughs> and we put it on backwards. We put it on upside down, and so it didn't work, right? And so finally, I had to, to call a sprinkler repair guy. That's ultimate defeat right there, ultimate surrender. It's not good on the budget, but it's even worse on the pride, isn't it? Okay. Call this guy up, and after like three or four days of messing with this thing every spare moment the kids were little and I'm sure I was losing hair over the whole process and guess what I got to share Christ with the sprinkler guy and I was like oh I get it I get it God had something bigger in mind than my budget or my comfort and he brought this guy into my life that I was able to share share the Lord with and sometimes that happens doesn't it the car breaks down and the Lord brings you into someone's life that you'd never see otherwise. And God's saying, I'm doing something here. And Paul had this physical infirmity that brought him into this area of Galatia. Verse 14, in my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So whatever was going on with Paul in his flesh was so severe that some may despise him or reject him, but that's not what this group of people did. They received him as a messenger of God. In verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given to me. It seems to be that Paul is indicating that the difficulty with his, was with his eyes. 
you would have taken out your own eyes to give them to me. Some have thought that this was Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't know for sure. It's a possibility. It seems to be that he was having difficulty with his eyes. But he changes the tone in verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Paul said we had such a good thing going. You received me in my infirmity. You received Christ. There was this acceptance that was taking place. But now that I'm speaking the truth to you, because you're compromising the gospel, you're treating me as your enemy. If someone speaks the truth to you, don't treat them as your enemy. Because that's the person that really loves you. Amen? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's difficult to speak the truth to someone. They know that they're risking the friendship or the relationship. So cherish that. Don't reject them. Verse 17, speaking of these false teachers that have influenced these churches, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. These false teachers are passionate about wanting to spend time with you. A lot of times they give you the attention that you've been longing for. But notice where they're leading you. They're leading you to a place of exclusion. And please note this and be really, really careful about this. If you come in contact with somebody that all of a sudden is really flattering towards you, they're, they're stoked on you, they're giving you all this attention, they're saying, I really see in you a genuine heart for Christ. You really want to be a disciple. You want to go deep. I share this with a lot of people, but they just don't have the patience for it. But you do. And once you start walking down this path, you can't hang out with those rest of those believers because they eat pork. Because they worship on Sunday. They watch football games. They go to the movies. They have father-daughter dances. Don't hang out with them. They're really not serious about their relationship with Christ. You fill in the blank, right? They're trying to exclude you from the body of Christ. John 17, Jesus prayed about his heart for the body, that we would be one even as him and the Father are one. So when someone's following the Spirit, they're going to be leading us to the unification of the body of Christ, not the separation of the body of Christ. So if someone's trying to lead you away from other believers, look out. That's not a, a good sign. In verse 18, but it's good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. So Paul's saying zeal is great if it's for good things, and be zealous even when I'm not with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. This is a pretty powerful illustration. Paul says, I've labored like a woman in birth pains in order that you would receive Christ as your Savior, and I'm willing to do it again so that Christ would be formed in you again. Uh, Wow, that's a lot of love right there. I think this is a lesson for us. When we struggle, hopefully there's brothers and sisters in Christ that say, I'm going to labor again for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to speak the truth to you. And when we have friends that we really care for in Christ, we don't give up on them when times when they struggle, even when they're struggling to this extent and to this degree. Verse 20, I'd like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul says, I would love to be able to come to you with a different tone, but I have my doubts. So what have we seen so far in this chapter? First, 
Know your identity. You're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. It's relationship over rules. And then know your history. What kind of bondage were you in before you received Christ as your savior? Why would you trade in the freedom that you have in Christ through the grace of Jesus to go back under bondage? But this time, what's going to lead you to bondage is legalism. What's going to lead you to bondage is here's all of these rules, these extra biblical rules. Even the commands that God has given to us being followed with the wrong understanding and the wrong motivation. The last point tonight, number three, is know your contract. Know your contract. The biblical word is covenant. It's God's agreement with us. We're taken back to the Old Testament with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar to learn this lesson of the covenant of grace or the contract of grace. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. So we go back into Genesis. We go into the life of Abraham. God spoke to him and says, you're going to have children and your descendants are going to be as the sands of the sea and the multitude of the stars. Hey, Sarah, isn't this exciting? We're going to have kids, our descendants. God's going to multiply us. But year after year, they kept experiencing no kids, no kids, no kids, no kids. So finally, Sarah's tired of this. And she says, well, why don't you just take my handmaiden, Hagar, who was given to Abraham and Sarah when they were in Egypt, when Abraham had lied that Sarah was his sister. God worked that all out and delivered them, and they left with spoils and servants, and Hagar was one of those servants. And so Sarah says, yeah, go, just go ahead and have relationship with Hagar. Abraham says, well, let me pray about that one. You know, No, he doesn't pray about it. He should have prayed about it, but he doesn't. And he has sex with Hagar, and here's Ishmael. And Ishmael is that child that was born from, from Hagar. And that's the illustration between Isaac and Ishmael. But he who was born of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman through promise. So we have this contrast. Ishmael was born for the, through the flesh, meaning that Abraham was trying to make God's promises happen in his own strength. God's promise that we're going to have kids, multitude of descendants, so I'm going to make that happen through a way that seems logical. But Sarah, she had Isaac through promise, through faith, believing God. God giving a child to them when they were too old to have children. Which things are symbolic? For these are two covenants. For the one from Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So Hagar and Ishmael represent a contract. They represent a covenant. And it's the old covenant that came from Mount Sinai where God gave the law. It brings bondage into our lives. Church, you've got to know that you're not under that contract with God. You don't live at Mount Sinai anymore. Mount Sinai was based on this. If you obey, you get blessed. If you disobey, you get cursed. If then relationship with God. It's kind of contract that you you may have with your credit card. Right? If you make the payments, it's all good. But if you don't, you get the late fees. That's the whole idea of the law. If if you can fulfill the requirements, man, you're all good. But if you fall short, you're going to get the consequences. And that's represented in Hagar and in Ishmael. In verse 25, 
For this is this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So he takes us from Mount Sinai to the earthly city of Jerusalem, and he says, This is the old covenant, because in Jerusalem is where the old covenant was being practiced. That was the center of this legalism. But here's the other city. It says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So the other contract comes from God's throne room, from heavenly Jerusalem, from Calvary, where Jesus died upon the cross for us, where the contract is not, if you do this, then this is what you receive. The contract now is, it is finished. Jesus paid it. It's done. And because it's done, we receive now the freedom through faith. It's not bondage. And so we understand our contract. We look at verse 27. It's a quote from Isaiah 54, verse 1. It says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, for you do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who had a husband. Sarah was barren, and she had a child. We know Israel was barren through the Babylonian captivity, but God brought them back into the promised land. In verse 28, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. God's supernatural work in our lives through faith. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecutes him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Ishmael persecuted who? Isaac. And it's the same today. Is those that don't understand the grace of Jesus Christ, those that are legalists, they'll persecute those who understand the new covenant, the new contract. As you look at the New Testament, it's amazing how those who are under the old covenant attacked those who were committed to the gospel. And here's the application. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Know your contract? What was Abraham ultimately to do? Because Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, God spoke to him and said, you need to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And what did Abraham say? He said, no, that Ishmael may live before you. Why? because we always get attached to the work of our flesh. God, no, I've built this. I've worked so hard for it. It's my reputation. This is what people know of me. And God says, cast it out. So here's the application for us. And this is why it would mean so much to the original readers, is because who is taking away their freedom? The Judaizers who are claiming it through the Old Testament. So Paul proves it from the Old Testament. We have a new contract. We have a new covenant. It's the covenant of grace and not of works. This is what I want you to try to get tonight, is this. First, know your identity. Know your identity. Relate to God as your father. He's your father. And live out of that place of relationship with him. And be committed to walking in holiness, but out of relationship because you are the son of God, not trying to earn or deserve his favor. Tonight, leave this place, come to the communion table and cry out, dad, daddy, I'm running into your arms. Thanks for your your love for me. Think about all the times where God ran out of the stands when your hamstring was blown, when it was the dark night of the soul 
where you're collapsed down and he came and he picked you up and he's walking with you. He's, he's your father. And then know your history. Know the bondage that we were under. Man, we've been set free. Don't go back to bondage. And then finally, know your contract. As we come and take communion, celebrate. God, this is the way that you interact with me. And if you'll notice in this text, Sarah and Hagar could not dwell together. Works and love cannot dwell together. Grace and works cannot dwell together in the sense of you have to cast out the legalism. You got to cast out this mentality that says, you know what? If I read my Bible today, God loves me. If I read my Bible for seven days, then God's going to give me a cookie, you know? And I've been going to church now on Wednesday night. I'm here every Wednesday night, and I look around on Sunday, and there's a lot more people here on Sunday, and they don't come to Wednesday night. They're lousy Christians. God should bless me because I come to Wednesday. Well, you might get a few crumbs from God. It's like, do you really want to enter into an agreement with God on give me what I deserve? No. No. We're not here to try to earn or deserve God's favor. We're here because we've already received it. We're in this contract of grace. We're in this freedom of the Lord. And so then we get that place where we just get to enjoy the Lord. We get to respond to the Lord. We're secure in his love. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, as we take communion, would you minister to our hearts? Would you help us to understand our identity that it's secure in you, that we're your sons, we're your daughters. Holy Spirit, would you minister to that us? Would you minister that to us tonight? God, we think of our history. We think of the bondage that we're in and how you've set us free. May we not go back to bondage. May we not turn back. And may we know the contract that's written in your blood, that it is finished, it is done. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.